So, all right. Anybody else's allergies driving them crazy? Is that just me? Okay. Well, if I sniffle or talk slow or wheeze, uh, that's that's what's going on. So, you know, if you are a parent, you'll probably be able to agree with me, understand what I mean when I say that at times our kids will do things or say things that take us back to our childhood. And when that happens, then we respond to our kids and we say things that we said our we would, oh, I would never be like my mom and dad and say the things that they said, but we all know these scenarios actually end up happening. And so I was reminded of that type of a situation uh, earlier this week when I was preparing to, to launch this new sermon series for us. A time when a couple of years ago, my son Samuel came to me and said something that took me back to my childhood. And in these words, he said, I know I had said them so many times myself. And he came to me and he said, Dad, I hate Shakespeare. (laughs) I just don't get it. I don't understand it. And I know that I have uttered those words myself as well. And so I thought, here's my dad moment. I can seize the opportunity and I can teach him something. I can teach him the valuable lesson of Cole's notes or for our American friends, Cliff Notes, right? Where it takes the the original language, which was just awkward and difficult, and puts it into contemporary context, contemporary language, so we can understand it. If you haven't been through something like that, I can give you an example. One of the most famous lines from Romeo and Juliet, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is Juliet. Sorry, it is the east, and Juliet is the sun. See, I I need help, right? (laughs) It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Or you can get your cliff notes that goes, wait, What's that light over there in the window? Oh, it's Juliet. (laughs) So so you can see how it's helpful. You you lose something in the translation. But you can understand how that can be very helpful. Uh, Now, I thought I was smart in seizing that dad moment and teaching him about this valuable lesson. In the end, I actually just ended up feeling old. Because it turns out he was already aware of this. But he didn't know about cliff notes or coal notes. He knew about spark notes. Because there's an app for that now. And he actually... (laughs) had it on his phone already. And it uh, turns out on that app, you don't have to even read. You can just watch the video. So, <laughs> so in the end, I just kind of felt old. But anyways, as we start this new sermon series, we're going to be spending the summer in some passages that people find hard to understand at times. And, you know, they're ones that, if I'm honest, I've struggled with at times to kind of find myself immersed in. Uh, and that being the Psalms, the book of Psalms. Uh, it's a poetic section of literature we find in the scriptures. And for some people, if you're like me, you can find it a little awkward and, and a little unfamiliar because there's, there's different patterns and structures. There's parallelism and there's, there's rhyming sequences that take place within there. But the series that we're going into here is called, as you can see, the Songs of Summer. Because these psalms are beautiful pieces of scripture. They, these psalms are, we could also look at them as songs of our hearts. Songs that awaken life and truth out of our hearts, that help us to tune in to new and expressive ways of worshiping. And they carry important themes within them. They carry themes and teachings about things like who is God and, and, and who is man. They, they reveal things like the, the beauty of, and the nature of creation. They teach us a new language and new ways to express our, our, our worship life in, in prayer and in song and in in how we can live our lives amongst others. But the Psalms also lead us into paths of real life, and that's one thing I so deeply appreciate about them. Because sometimes when you read through the Psalms, the story gets a little messy. Sometimes there's a tension within the Psalm as well. 
Sometimes we can read psalms that have pain, others that have joy. There's self-knowledge and self-doubt. There's love, there's hate, there's truth, there's suspicion. They speak of all of these things, but they all give us opportunity to bring that mess of life before God as we ought to. And did you know that we can even open up the psalms and we can have an eye and a mind to see Jesus in them? Because Jesus quoted many, many psalms. And a lot of the psalms actually are fulfilled by Jesus. We can even look at the psalm book as, as the songbook of Jesus' worship, in a way. And so in him and in these songs, we can find experiences with his comforting presence, with his forgiveness and with his healing and with love that comes through these words. So I hope that sounds like a viable journey for us to go through this summer. We're going to spend the summer in the book of Psalms. Each week we'll just look at a different psalm and, and unpack the meaning and the richness that that can have in each of our lives. So I hope that sounds like a valuable journey for us. And as we start that today, we're going to do so by beginning at the beginning in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, which was created, many believe it was created and composed actually specifically to be an introduction to the entire book of Psalms, the entire Psalter. And as we walk through the psalm today, we see that it encourages its readers, it encourages those who hear this psalm to consider and to reflect upon the messages of God. It affirms that how one responds to this revelation of God, how one responds to the word of God, how a person responds to that ultimately determines their destiny. And in particular, it declares that there is a final outcome for the way of the righteous versus what it calls the way of the sinner. And the difference between these two ways really boils down to the subtle choices and the subtle influences that we allow ourselves to submit to each day. Now, you may have heard the saying in outside of church context, perhaps, you may have heard the saying in the business world or in other areas that, that your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you're getting. I never heard that before. It's sort of a logical statement if you think about it. Your system, the way you do things, the process by which you are organized, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you're getting. And so if you're in a business world or if you were to hire a consultant or a counselor to come in and unpack what's happening in your life, your organization, if you wanted to change the end results that you're experiencing or that you're projected towards, what that consultant or the counselor would do was they would look at the end result necessarily. They would look at the systems, the steps that are leading towards that end result. Because your system that you're operating by is perfectly designed to deliver the results that you're getting. Does that make sense? Sort of a logical statement that we used to use in the business world before I got into, into this life. But the same thing can also be said for our spiritual lives. Said a little bit differently. We could say it this way, that the path you choose to follow leads you exactly where you're going to arrive. The path that you choose to follow leads you exactly where you're going to arrive. Now that doesn't mean that if you choose the right path, you're going to have a problem-free existence. But it does mean that if we choose the right path, that according to the promises of Scripture, that if we choose the correct path, we will have a genuine experience with God. And in that genuine experience, we will feel closeness and intimacy to Him. We will feel a sense of contentment. 
We'll experience joy in all seasons. We'll experience peace that surpasses, transcends the moment that we find ourselves in. And we will find that we are transformed by Jesus' presence in our lives and by his work upon the cross, that it changes us and puts us on a path towards an eternal destiny in heaven with him. You see, the path that we choose to follow in a spiritual sense will lead us exactly where we want to arrive. And so as we walk through this psalm today, I ask you to consider a couple of questions. First of all, I simply ask you to consider which path are you on? Spiritually speaking, which path are you on? Where is it leading towards? But then also another question, how's that working for you? Which path are you on? Where is it leading towards? And how's that working for you? Because the truth, the the path that you choose to follow will lead you exactly to where you will arrive and what you are experiencing on the way today. Here's how the psalmist explains it. He begins by describing these two paths, these two ways of life, first by using a positive statement, which is followed by some negative examples. Here's what I mean by that. He says, blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, that, that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates upon his law day and night. He begins by saying, blessed is the man who does not, blessed is the man who does not do certain things. Now, when we first read that, we might interpret that as saying, well, okay, if I want to be a good person, a good person just doesn't do certain things. Like like good kids don't steal, good athletes don't cheat, good salesmen don't tell lies. That might be how we want to first approach this opening psalm, but, but that's not quite what the word blessed means. See, the word blessed, which will show up 24 times in the book of Psalms, doesn't mean so much a good person as much as it's referring and conveying this idea of happiness and contentment. As in, happy and content is the person who is not guilty by doing these sorts of things. Or happy and content is the person who is not guilty by associating with these negative examples. Now, the negative examples that the author puts forth, are really examples that describe a departure away from God. Uh, They describe a walking away from him. And we can see this progression of walking away from God onto a different path in the words that he intentionally uses. This is where the beauty of the Psalms comes out. The word selection in Psalms is specific and intentional. And we can see it immediately in the first two verses here. For example, in the words, walk, stand, and sit. There's a progression here, because the words that are used there, the word walk, is this idea of coming alongside to seek or to receive counsel from somebody. We have a question, we have a problem, we want to seek counsel, and we want to receive some, some guidance. So we walk alongside. But then there's a progression beyond that where we stand with. Now, standing with is no longer coming along to inquire. Standing with is joining in in the behavior, joining in in the activity. So we've gone from seeking counsel to joining in and then to a step further of sitting among, where we sit among, meaning we have a place of belonging with, where we have much in common with those that we have joined into. So you can see the progression, even the first few verses here, this idea of of we walked alongside to seek counsel, but then we stood alongside to, to join in, and now we are sitting with because we belong in that place. The path you choose leads to where you're going to end up. There's also a progression seen in the activities around these verbs that are used. Because it says here that, first of all, we we walk alongside the wicked. Now, the wicked is a general term used to, to refer to an ungodly person. But then it progresses to a sinner. 
Speaking here not of a person who, who, who stumbles and sins on occasion, but speaking of a person who is trapped in habitual sin. This is the difference between getting a speeding ticket and being a habitual professional uh, cat burglar type of a thing. There's a, there's a distinction between a speeding ticket and being a professional burglar. But then a step further to the word mocker, which is the worst of the ungodly. This is a person who seeks to actively undermine, a person who, who lives by a worldview that belittles God and belittles the other path that he calls us to walk down. So we can see these progressions. And, and in this first verses, we see that there's a warning, but there's also a warning against these influences that can cause us to gradually drift away from God. Now, as I've shared that, unpack those first two verses for you, perhaps you can look back upon your own life and you can see seasons or, or a time before you had committed your life to the Lord when that defined the way that you were walking, that that was the path, the way that you were walking down. Or at times there were maybe a season in your life where you went from one path of walking with the Lord and you did slowly drift away to a different path. It's an all too common story that happens in many people's lives. I remember a person by the name of Matthew I encountered who was a young man that, that grew up in a Christian home in the church. And, and when he was in his teenage years, he came to make a, a, a profession of faith and accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And, and it was very genuine. It was a transformational moment in his life. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't have questions. He didn't have doubts. He, he had the natural sort of things that happen in a person as they, as they journey with Christ. And he had a genuine encounter with God and was committed to him. Nothing out of the usual. Nothing, no doubts or questions that were beyond his ability to work through. But then he reached a point where a transition in his life led him to enter into university. And when he entered into the walls of the university, he began to be exposed to contrary views, which initially he thought were very enlightening. Now, they were enlightening because they helped him actually to refine his faith. They didn't initially draw him away from his faith. They helped him to refine his faith. And they actually opened his mind so that he could enter into meaningful dialogue with people about who God was. And the initial effect of this was that this, this opening up of knowledge actually strengthened his faith because it allowed him to be able to defend his faith in the public square. He could handle that. But here's what he couldn't handle. He couldn't handle the fact that his life suddenly got really, really busy. He couldn't handle the, the taunting that would take place when people learned that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. And he struggled with the pressure to fit in that was all around him. And slowly over time, there was this erosion of a once strong faith and relationship in God. This slow drift started to happen to the point where he disengaged from his church community. He stopped spending as much time reading his Bible and spending time in prayer. He had less time for the friends that weren't around the university circles that he was a part of. He eventually found himself on a new direction, on, on a new path, if you will, starting to develop a new worldview to a point where he was sitting among the mockers. A slow, gradual progression that he never intended to take, but found himself walking towards. And stories like this are repeated in various ways and in various stages of life and settings of, of many wonderful people. Where a once strong faith is slowly eroded by the allowing of other influences to come in and take provenance in a person's life. And here's my point. First of all, what is not my point? I, my point is not that we are to fear the world. I'm not suggesting that we are to avoid knowledge. 
that we're to avoid other views that exist out there. Knowledge is power, as they say. It can strengthen our faith. It can refine our faith and help us to defend and stand strong in those public squares. I'm not suggesting we should stick our heads in the sand and pretend that these things don't exist out there. But here's, here's what I am saying, and it's in line with what Jesus told his followers. He said, I am sending you out as sheep among the wolves. I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And in other words, this idea of being as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves, he's saying, be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. It's fine to have a knowledge of these, but be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And in this verse, we see an instruction and we also see a caution because we need to be careful of the influences that we allow to inform our lives. You can think of yourself this way. Think of yourself as a fine chalice, like a, like a, a crystal goblet, perhaps that you have in your china cabinet at home. And that was created for one purpose. It was created to be filled up. Well, we too are like that fine china that is created to be filled up. It is not a question of if we will be filled. It is merely a question of what we will allow to fill us up. And the world around us constantly bombards us with messages, with with images and ideas and theories and what it says we should be pursuing. And we can choose to follow those things and allow ourselves to be filled up by those things. Or even by our passivity of not choosing something else to fill us up, that will be what fills us up. That will be what influences us. If we choose to allow it to come in or if we simply leave a vacuum in our lives, that is what will fill us up. That is what will impact our thinking. It will inform our behaviors. It will inform our views. It will help us to select the path that we choose to walk down by what we allow to fill us up. Or, as the psalmist points out, blessed is the person who delights in the influences. Blessed is the person who delights in the instruction that we find from God. Now, here he refers to it as the law, which we could best understand as as God's revelation to us, which we find in the Bible, the words of God written in the Holy Bible, in, in Scripture. That is what we are to have ourselves to be filled up with and to be filled up to the brim so that everything from our internal dialogue about ourselves to our external words spoken to and about other people to the pursuits that we choose to go after to our actions, to our drives, to the passions that govern our lives so that all of these things are informed by God through his word and we may follow his will and his path for us. You see, not only is this isn't just a command, that he gives to us. It isn't just the sense of, well, God says I need to do this, so out of a sense of duty, I'm going to do this. You see, as this almost continues to take us a step further, he goes, well, there is that sense of command, there is that sense of duty, but if we do so, it also yields practical, desirable results in our lives in the here and now for today, which adds even more reason for us to consider doing it. Because in the next verses, here's what gets added. The psalmist adds this in the next passage. He says that the path that we choose to lead leads to different conditions. So the blessed, the the one who delights in the Lord, as I was just describing, is like a tree that is planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in seasons in which leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, but not so the wicked. But not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. 
Now, those who know and those who seek to live in a relationship with God, with his word, and, and, and trust and confidence with him, those people are pictured here as, as a thriving tree, as a thriving tree that is planted by streams of water. That's where they find themselves. And, and metaphorically speaking, they find themselves in this lush paradise where they're receiving all that they need for thriving, not just for surviving, but for thriving. And they are truly blessed. They, they have fertile soil. They have fresh water. They have place in which they can develop deep, strong roots. We've probably all seen trees like this that are healthy and strong and nourished. And when you see them, you can just tell there's a health and a, and a vitality about them. They have strong limbs that you can hang a tire swing off of and have safety and security. And they have thick foliage that provides cool shade for animals and for people to come sit under. And healthy trees tend to produce healthy fruit that is evidence of, of, of life within them, but also allows others to come and receive nourishment as well. And so this idea, this tree planted by these waters is a metaphor for our own spiritual lives. That when we enter into this relationship with a master planter, with a master gardener, it provides for us the necessities for us to have a healthy spiritual life as well. It gives us the ability to develop these deep roots and these strong branches and this thick foliage. But healthy trees also produce fruit. Now, maybe you've seen some of these trees, these healthy fruit trees. And later this afternoon, actually, I'm going to be flying down to Kelowna to, to meet my family who left a few days ago for a bit of a summer vacation. And, and we are going to spend some time driving by lots of orchards just full of thick foliage and, and, and limbs that are heavy with fruit. We'll probably even end up doing a you pick, which baffles me because they charge you more to pick it yourself than if you just go buy it from the fruit stand at the side. I, I don't understand that. It's about the experience, they say. So, actually, we did that last year, and, and I was a little, a little grumpy because I paid more to go do it myself, which some guys can appreciate where I come from. But then we get into the field, and, and they've actually got trees marked off that you can't pick from. The, the really healthy trees we're not allowed to touch because they're going to pick those ones and go sell those at the fruit stand for less. So they're going to charge us more to go pick kind of the garbage. So I thought, forget that. I'm going to the healthy trees. So, so it probably wasn't the right thing to do, but anyways, I went and did the U-pick from the, from the healthy trees. Anywho, the Bible speaks of fruit too. Uh, fruit that comes off of these, uh, of these trees um, and fruit of the Spirit, which is evidence of, of, of the Spirit's work within us. See, it doesn't come from our ability, but it comes from the Spirit's ability and the Spirit's work through us to produce this good fruit. And this good fruit that comes through us is, number one, evidence of the Spirit's presence and working and being allowed to work in our lives. But secondly, we become a bit of a you-pick ourselves, where other people can come by, and they can be nourished, and they can seek out that good fruit for their own lives that they can have as well. And the stuff that they can come pick from us and they can experience from us, this this fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians 5, are, are things like they can experience love and joy peace and patience and and kindness. They can come and they can experience our goodness and they can see faithfulness in us and gentleness and they can see that we live lives of self-control, not because of us, but because the Spirit's work through us and in us. That's one option. That's the path of the blessed who delights in the Lord. But then the psalmist goes, or, or you can be like dry, scaly chaff that is just blown in the wind. Now, if you grew up on a farm, you might be familiar with this idea, but I'm a city boy, and so I didn't quite know what chaff was. But here's what it is if you needed a lesson like I do. 
So when you harvest a field of grain or barley, you bring in these sheaves, and they need to be beaten to separate the grain from the, the sheath. And then as they're beaten, the husk and the kernel separate. Now, to separate those further, they throw them up in the air, and the wind will come and blow the loose, dry chaff away, leaving the good grain to fall down to the ground. And then the grain can be collected as the chaff just blows away. So the contrast here is pretty clear of the two paths placed before us. We can either be like the fruitful tree that bears good fruit, or like the dry, useless chaff that just blows away in the wind. We can be like well-watered, stable, healthy trees or dry, dusky, fleeting husks. And if we're honest with ourselves, isn't it true that as we look back upon our spiritual lives, upon our journeys with Jesus Christ, we can relate to both of these in different seasons? Can we be honest about that? I remember there was a time when I didn't realize how dry I was. A few years ago, uh, I didn't realize how dry I was, and, and I didn't know that my soul was going through a drought. I was going through a time of, I had a lot of questions and a lot of doubts, and there was a time of loneliness, and, and I even contemplated giving in. Not just giving in being a pastor, but I was done with the whole God thing, too. A very, very dry period. But you know, there's, there's a guy by the name of St. John of the Cross, who back in the 16th century wrote a famous poem that relates to that called The Dark Night of the Soul. And in that poem, he speaks about the pain and the difficulties during an experience of of this spiritual crisis that people can enter into at times. Now, he never goes into the reason, never states the reason why he entered into it, but he does talk about how it was hard and even painful for him to read the Scriptures. It was was difficult to pray and, and, and to have a worshipful experience. Perhaps you can relate to a season or a time such as that. A season where you have this this dark night of the soul, if you will. Now, it's hard to admit when it happens because we can be filled with shame when that takes place. Because we're we're taught sometimes inappropriately that the Christians are supposed to always be happy. We're not supposed to question. We're not supposed to have any doubts ever. And during that season I was in, I didn't realize how dry I got until I actually went away for a little while and went to a church elsewhere. As I sat in that church service, and during this time of worship with, with singing and praying and listening to the message, I could feel tears starting to build up in my eyes. And it was like fresh water that was being poured upon parched land. I had no idea how dry my soul had become. And it was like watering a dry sponge that just soaks up every drop that was being offered in that service. And I then realized how far I had drifted. And that I needed to choose to begin my journey out of that desert out of that dryness and to get back into seeking the springs of life that Jesus offers to us. Because those springs of life, the, the cure for dryness is found in Jesus Christ, whom we're told one day found himself talking to a thirsty Samaritan woman at a well. And he said to her, whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them spring of water, welling up with eternal life. So if you are here today in your soul thirsts, if it feels like the wind of life could separate you and blow you away like chaff, 
then I pray that the words of this psalm would, would call you back, would call you back to the nourishing, refreshing, and life-giving springs that can be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this relationship which is revealed in the Bible, which is revealed in the good news of Jesus, the good news that God has provided salvation through the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son Jesus. And that is for all people. It is for all time if we will simply come. If we will simply come and confess our need if we will come and confess that we have wandered and that we need to get back on that path that Christ has set for our lives and come back to those refreshing springs. And this is a choice that is presented to all of us in this life. And how we respond to this choice not only has an effect as we've been describing upon the here and now, but it also has an eternal effect as well. Because the path that we're walking has a destination, has an eternal destination. And the way or the path that a person chooses, if left unchanged, will determine your ultimate goal, your ultimate destination. Which at the end of the psalm, the psalmist says this about. He says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, all of us are going to stand before God one day. We'll all stand before God and we will be judged. And that is a reality for every person who has ever been created. And, and here the psalmist says the wicked, which is just a, a general term for those who are living apart from God, he says those people will have no leg to stand on. See, the basis of, of their lives, which have been lived under their own power, under their own worldly wisdom, when they stand before God, that will stand for nothing. They've sought to forge their own trail, and that their own trail that they forged after being the master of their own destiny was a trail that was absent from God's presence. And from a view of eternity, they're like chaff. That when what they have based their lives upon, when they look at the accomplishments on the path they've walked, when that is tested, it'll be thrown up into the air, and it will blow away and be consumed by fire. Which is a ridiculously sobering thought for us to think about. But it's not something for us to fear. We do not have to fear this because for those who choose the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, those that the psalmist here refers to as the righteous. Now, as he says the righteous, it makes us all sound kind of high and mighty. But even as we say that, we have to keep in mind that the fact that we are called to righteous has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus Christ. Those of us who have accepted him because of his presence in our lives, not because of anything we've done, that like chaff blows away but because of his presence, of his righteousness in our lives, we then can stand before God on that day. You see, we all struggle with the same thing. We all struggle with the same condition. All of us have the same condition of being sinners. All of us are accounted at one time or another in our lives in that area where the psalmist refers to as the wicked. And the consequences of our sinfulness was spiritual death. The Bible has been clear from the very beginning. The consequences of sin is that spiritual separation from God. But the good news is that God loves you so much that even while you were still on the side of being an enemy of God, even while we were still sitting in the seats of mockers, he loved you even then to the point where he was willing to send Jesus Christ to pay the price for your sins and for mine by giving his life force upon the cross. And the consequences of sin is death, but the gift of God is forgiveness and eternal life. And all we need to do, 
It almost seems too simple as Romans 10.9 tells us, is that if we will declare with our mouth Jesus is Lord, and if we will believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whether you are a homeless man who is begging for a meal or the prime minister of our nation or somewhere in between, your righteousness is not of yourself. And we all have the same struggle with the same sin condition. See, God determines our righteousness solely based upon our relationship with Jesus Christ, not about anything that's within us or good about us. And that is the key distinction between these two paths that the psalmist speaks of. It really boils down to one question. And it's a question that Jesus asked his followers one day. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Some will say that he's a figment of your imagination. Some will say he's a fable for the weak-minded. Others will say he's a man of history. He's a good teacher. He's a wise man. He's a person who long ago founded an ancient religion. Or perhaps like those whom God counts among the righteous, you will come to believe and profess that he is the son of the living God, that you can accept him as your Lord and as your Savior. The path, the, the way to all of this is through Jesus. In fact, the earliest Christians were not even called Christians. If you find the word Christian used in the earliest times, it was actually a derogatory term. What they're usually referred to as followers of the way was one of the original phrases, followers of the way, which is in line with when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus has made the way. He is step one on the path to righteousness. He is step one in that path to living waters that nourishes and gives us vitality in life, in the here and in eternity. And so whether you need to step onto that path today for the first time, or if it is a step back onto that path after a time of strain, it begins with Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. And when we read this psalm, it is clear that there are two paths. But we also have a sense as we read this psalm that the psalmist knows that there is a fine line between them. There's a fine line between them even after we choose to begin following Jesus. Here's a final word about this two paths that is set before each of us. The path to follow Jesus is not just a momentary one-time decision. We all need to make that first step onto the path of righteousness with, which begins with accepting Jesus as our personal Savior. But every step thereafter is also a choice if you think about it. It's a choice to make him the Lord of our steps, the Lord of our path, that as we wake up each day, we make that choice to continue to walk in that direction. And this can be seen, merely seen as the duty I referred to earlier, where I have a duty to follow Jesus because I've said I'm a Christian. But when we consider the depth of his love for us, and when we consider that his love is not just shown in words, but his love was shown in incredible action, then instead of just acts of obedience, perhaps as we encounter and come to understand the depth of his love in action for us, we don't just do acts of obedience as a duty, but more accurately, they become acts of devotion. Even in our own lives, they can become acts of expressions of devotion back towards God. 